1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gago. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Lauren. Good morning.
2: Good morning. How are you, Dr. Shane?
1: I'm fighting fish.
2: Fighting fish, yes. Yeah. Isn't that a beautiful autumn day today? Well, I it's
1: like... a, windy, a windy day today.
2: But, but there's a bit of sun. That's all I need. Like, it can oh, be yeah, raining yeah. as yeah. long as there's sun. You yeah. know it's winter
1: now. Yeah. And Dr. Crystal, good morning.
3: Good morning, Dr. Shane. Hi, Dr. Lauren. Morning.
1: Can I tell you, I was very excited this morning to the point of almost uh, winding down my window <laughs> and saying something to a, a driver of another vehicle. Mm-hmm. Well, it was one of those new Tesla cars.
2: Ah, yeah. I and
1: saw... I, I really wanted to wind down and hey, yep. where did you get that? That yes. looks so awesome. What's <laughs> it like? Is that, a... actually, it was a bloody nice looking car. Mm. I was really impressed. Like they have really designed a very nice car. And I, was, I wanted to wind down my window and see if I could hear it running. <laughs> yeah, <'cause... laughs> I bet you couldn't. Well, you probably couldn't. Although I understand there was some safety, you know, there's safety concerns about yeah. that. Cause you know, as, a cyclist, <laughs> as a
3: cyclist, that makes me really nervous. Yeah. I can almost <laughs> hear the car coming up behind me. Yeah, yeah,
1: totally. That's right. <laughs> So anyway, it's great to see them on the roads. I think um, fabulous. And mm. shall we get into some science news? We've got we've got a great show today, folks. We've got um, a couple of guests. We're going to talk to someone from Environment Victoria and from the Murdoch. And I'm going to do a book review, which means I've read the book. Happens about once every decade. <laughs> Is awesome. it going to be
2: a Barbara Cartland special you know, romance novel? Is that what you? <laughs> She's
1: just rude, isn't she? You know, I'd agreed to lend this book to her until she said that. Now Aww. I don't think. I will. Science news, what do you got? Science,
2: science, science. Well, um, I actually was reading a really interesting article in The New Scientist uh, yesterday about a group at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston headed by Harold Ott that are actually starting to grow bio-limbs. So we know a lot mm. about, you know, uh, obviously artificial replacements for body parts, um, you know, so this prosthetic limbs. And the issue has always been that bionic replacement limbs work quite well but they look obviously artificial and hand transplants for example have been successful but there's issues with rejection from the the body and so and also the supply well that's it exactly yeah. exactly so the idea behind bio limbs is that you have you actually still do need a donor at this point so you get a limb you actually strip it of all of the cells from that donor so that then it's just basically the scaffolding so all that's left pretty much is, is sort of collagen and then what you do is you take cells from the person that needs that transplant and you actually seed the scaffolding. So it's a process called decell resell, which is for Ooh. decellularization, recellularization. I see what Sounds they've done like there.
1: Something you do with water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah okay.
2: you, you don't want to say it too quickly, that's true. Uh, but it's, it's quite a, a nice technique because yeah, you can basically strip it of all the bits that the body would reject, then seed it back with cells from the person that receives that, uh, that limb.
3: Mm. So when you're talking about a limb, are you talking about how much of a limb? Are you talking about a
2: big toe or a whole foot so, or below the knee? Yeah, yeah. So what they've actually published on is actually a, an entire forearm from a rat. So that's the, it's the paw and the, you know, the part below the elbow, if rats have elbows. I had never thought of that. Anyway, <laughs> It just well, made my brain. Go most so of else. the
1: leg. Lets yeah, the leg. that's most yeah. of the
2: leg. Exactly, uh, but it is quite amazing. So they've done um, over a hundred of these now in, in in rats, and what they've actually shown is that they can get the cells back onto that scaffold to uh, fill the blood vessels. So endothelial cells in the blood vessels. They mm-hmm. can also y- include myoblasts, which are cells that grow into muscles. So they can pretty much have the, the arm with the muscle structure and the blood structure. They still uh, need to work on, on bone and cartilage and other cells. So yeah, what about nerves? That's pretty big. That's exactly the issue. So yeah. the prob- the main two concerns with this is, is nerves um, and also the blood vessels. So it's the problem with putting in new endothelial cells is that there is a chance that you'll cause blood clots and then mm. obviously you're going to have issues with the success of that implant but it is um, it is pretty cool stuff.
3: It's fascinating and it builds on a lot of the um, regenerative medicine that's already happening I know that you can um, grow your own bladder for example because it's got a really simple scaffold and a simple tissue structure so you can actually create a synthetic scaffold and grow your own cells around that and that's being used clinically in people now so it's mm. just amazing to see how this regenerative medicine field mm. is progressing.
2: Yeah exactly, exactly and
1: I say hurry up because I'm not getting any younger <laughs> <laughs> and, and all that. (laughs) So at the moment, all things are good. (laughs) Ten years time. Something tells me I need some well, new stuff.
3: Melbourne's actually a huge hub for regenerative medicine. I was mm. out at the mm. Australian um, Medical uh, Australian um, Regenerative Medicine Institute, which is based oh, yeah. out at Monash, mm. and they actually study um, axolotls oh, yeah. um, because yeah. they can actually grow back mm. their mm. own limbs. Yep. And um, and they study sharks as well. Did you know that? There's mm. there's a shark tank at Monash yeah, University. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so, very cool. It's so cool. <laughs> and I got to go and see them. It was it was ace. But anyway. So yeah. There's there's
2: so mm. much exciting stuff happening Mm. in the regenerative medicine field definitely definitely so they're still saying in terms of human limbs we're still like a long way away from that so they're still saying at least a decade until they'd be ready to look at human limbs but they have been able to do it with a primate um, so they've been able to actually do this, stripping the cells away, and, and you know, adding new primate cells to the arm. So it's you know, not completely science fiction. Still,
1: mm. Mm. interesting.
2: That's amazing,
1: Dr. Crystal.
3: Look, there was so much great mm-hmm. science news this mm-hmm. week. I was I was really t- stuck. I had three stories I wanted to talk about today, and I didn't quite know how to decide because you know, to me, I want a science story that you know, whether you've solved a problem or you have provided an answer to a big question, or you've you know, challenged us to think in a new way, or allowed us to do something we've never been able to do before and I was like oh I've got three stories and I don't know which one to talk about because was that there was a story about you know does the brain have its own lymphatic system and you know what's going on there and there was a story about CSIRO who's taken these lessons from nature from seashells about how to you know protect and deliver some of the new drugs that we've got but i put it out so i thought i'll put it out to twitter and i'll ask you know i'll ask ask the audience what (laughs) what should i talk about and um the vote came back in favor of talking about a test that can measure every viral infection you've ever had Mm, Mm. and i thought when i and actually i have to say when i heard this first reported in the popular media this week i thought wow you know things that make you go hmm it was Mm. just like yeah, definitely. It was blood test. It was so Something, blood simple. Tests, something yeah. simple, something one yeah. drop of blood, um, mm. and that you could go back and actually analyze, you know, and detect every virus you've ever had because...
1: Can I, can I <laughs> say that, because I read that too, that one drop of blood, and I don't think there is a test, a blood test at the moment that uses one drop of blood. Well, <laughs> yeah, mm. They use quite a substantial amount of blood for most tests. They take
3: a they lot take of a blood, lot. but each yeah. test itself oh, yeah, yes, probably yes, only true. uses a They're little bit. But, but you don't want to have to go back for a recall. No, so You, right. you always want to take more than you need, at the time of yeah. drawing but um but uh, this was really fascinating because every time you have a viral infection it leaves a little um footprint on your immune system because your immune system responds mm-hmm. to most viruses by making antibodies and the antibodies you know neutralize or kill the virus depending on what the antibody does but basically it's kind of like the, the signature classic immune response mm-hmm. is get infected with something you make an antibody and those antibodies actually don't disappear they mm-hmm. persist at a very unless low unless you levels. have measles Oh yeah, measles mm. can, yeah, can erase, can erase some of that. Mm. Yep, which is why another reason why get vaccinated people. Yeah. Mm. Um, but uh, but uh, the, the, these antibodies can persist at very low levels. And now, if you want to find out, you know, have you had hepatitis B? You'd go and have a test for hepatitis B. You know, have to, you have to do it in a real linear kind of way. Mm. And in the 21st century, you know, we're all about big data. We want mm. to know more and more what, what's going on. So so this um, this test could actually um, measure for thousands of different antibodies antibodies um at a time and it was developed by it's called verscan and it was developed by the um, brigham and women's hospital and the harvard medical school in the u.s and basically what they did was they studied blood samples from more than 600 people across the world so and from different continents like some mm. Peru, Thailand, South Africa and the US. And um, and they were like, well, what is it that the immune system recognises in a virus? Like, you know, when the immune system's going, all right, you're a virus, I have to make an antibody against you, what's the bit of the virus that it responds mm. to? And it worked out. There's actually some really common patterns all across different people from all around the world as to how their immune response, um, you know, uh, responds to each of these different viruses. So, right, there's a pattern here. So we're using that pattern, we can develop a test. And so um, they can now uh, do a scan that they call it a multiplex, you know? <laughs> and and, and you, know, you can you can actually say, you know, well, this is every single yeah. virus you know known to humans. I mean, it won't it won't detect against viruses that are new and emerging, but mm. they can kind of say, well, here's all the different species of viruses. Here are the things you've been exposed to. And the reason why I was pretty excited about this is not only will it be able to use be used diagnostically and be able to inform decisions, like instead of going, oh, it's, you know, instead of a symptomatic effect, like oh, it sounds like you oh. might have this. We'll send you for a this test we'll go well let 's just have a look and see you know what you 've ever had mm. and it 's just so mm. much personalized information it 's just another example of how health's becoming more and more personalized and it will also allow us to look for the correlations between what you 've been exposed to in the past and what your current health status mm. is mm. and that may become really important when you think about how previous infections to viruses might implicate you know be implicated in cancer mm. or yep. in some autoimmune mm. conditions or mm. other chronic diseases where we are still finding out how our immune response has been altered Mm. by past viral Mm. infection
1: and our and our risk profile for the future as Mm. well i mean you know i I go to this country what is my risk profile what do i need to get Mm. what don't i need to get i mean there's certain things there where uh, you know a classic case was the um the flu a few years back you know that all the people had been exposed to and didn't swine flu, you know, mm. all the people had been exposed to and didn't get. If
3: you'd lived through a particular yeah. influenza period, mm. you know, because you were 60 years old, you yeah. actually still retained it, those antibodies. Even though
1: they were the ones who normally would be at mm. most risk. So, that, I mean, that sort of information mm. was really valuable. And
2: it's where information is power and when it comes mm. to making health decisions. Mm, definitely. How, how, how confident are they do you think that they're going to get every single virus? I'm just thinking, because, you know, pretty much every year everyone will come down with some sort of virus at some stage or other. Like, are they confident Confident that we can get everything. I think think they're confident to the level of species, Mm. but but you're right
3: that viruses do mutate quite quickly. But Mm. I think what they've done is to try and find those core patterns that Mm. are Mm. recognised. So when some viruses can change, some of their, for example, the flu virus changes its um, coat proteins every Mm. year. They're they're looking for the the piece of the um, virus that doesn't change that the immune system still responds to. That is a marker Mm. that Mm. says, yeah, you've had the flu. Mm. We we might not know which um, Mm. subtype you've had, um, but we know that you've had that particular
1: virus. I'd love to get an idea of the number. So mm. if, if they said to me, oh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if someone said to me, "You in your life you've been exposed to seven hundred and ninety-two oh, viruses." Yeah.
3: Well, at the moment, I don't know what the that results that like. they had at the moment suggest that it was ten different species of virus. Mm. Okay. So you might have the same species of virus, but you might Many have different times. serotype, mm. yeah. um, for mm. example, with a common cold or, or whatever. Yep. But they, they reckon that um, this this study actually showed there's about ten, but some people it's up to eighty-four. Wow. wow. You know, and that there are, um, and you, and that can depend on where you live in the world. Yep. Yeah. It can depend on things like you know whether or not you've got HIV, you mm. know, or whether you've got another um, general health gen, your general health how old you are because mm. sometimes it's just a matter of exposure like the older you are the more mm. viruses you will have been exposed mm. to because you've got a lived history yeah. um but i think what this really comes down to is the fact that health is going to be about data mm. yep. and that we need to be able to have the analytics to actually yeah. make this data into knowledge yep. and that's where kids we need some more mathematicians yeah. so <laughs> if you want to make a big difference to the future of health we're going to need more mathematicians out there Indeed. so maths are, so study maths. <laughs> love it.
1: Yeah. Uh, love mess. I did a lot of mess. Um, now, uh, folks, I'm sorry to say this. There is there is a slim chance that between now and the 14th of July, and even slightly after that, um, the only thing I'll do is do news stories on Pluto. I mean, I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> I, uh, I had expected Very nothing. exciting, <laughs> exciting time. Um, you know less than 49 million kilometers, and closing fast. Mm-hmm. 49 That's what million, say. 48 <laughs> million, 47 so if, if, you, <laughs> if you've had a head under a pillow for a while, um, you may not be aware that um, NASA's uh, New Horizons craft is approaching Pluto after a, almost decade-long journey this is pretty cool stuff um and we're, we're starting to find out some amazing things already not just from the probe but also from hubble space telescope uh, imaging because it's really been focused on pluto at the moment and one is that um some of their moons are kind of locked into these sort of orbits where they they sort of hang together so you may be aware that there's something called the laplace resonance between the the jovian jupiter's moons mm-hmm. where four of the main moons kind of move you can always work out where one is relative to the other and they they kind of they're linked in their orbits and three of um pluto's moons have been found to um be in the same situation so for example uh, these are nix Styx, and hydra and if you were sitting on nix for example you would watch Styx go around pluto twice every and for two rotations of sticks you would see three rotations of hydra so this is cool. this nice yeah. little resonance that's been mm. um locked together over years and so they're learning a lot and they've also found that um nix and hydra two of these moons are um rotating around their own axis in a chaotic way now this is kind of fascinating because um the only other moon in the solar system keeping in mind there are a bloody lot of moons in the solar system oh mm. well over 100 mm. um if you add up especially Saturn and jupiter's moons mm. um The only other moon that rotates or moves around cardically is um, Hyperion, one of Saturn's moons all the others sit there nicely, you know, rotating on their axis or not, mm. and they're very well behaved. So to sort of wander around on its axis chaotically, you know, like just a, a boulder going down a hill, um, is kind of weird.
3: So how stable is that system? Like, if there's all the, because it sounds like...
1: 4.3 billion years old. Yeah, so
3: yeah, no, even though I they're mean, chaotically it's moving, yeah, yeah. It, they're f- is, mm. is that because they've fallen into this? They've
1: fallen into a stable system. So even when I read the word chaotically there, I think, hmm, yeah, is, there, is there an aspect of it that is stable mm. over a long period because these moons have obviously been there for a long time they're the ones shall we say that have survived what was probably quite a turbulent period Mm -hmm. in that area with many moons being broken up reformed so forth so they're all there and and um and they're in this stable amazing configuration and the the flyby by by the um nasa spacecraft will be on july 14 but i suspect we're going to get a lot of information between now and then as we get closer Mm. 49 49 million kilometers and closing it's going to be it's going to be exciting time so i mean for those of you who are old enough to remember the last time we had this sort of level of excitement was back when Voyager one and two explored the other reaches of the solar system and in terms of actual mission it's important to know that this is even though those craft now have left our solar system and gone a long way and still doing some good stuff this is the furthest we've deliberately actually sent a probe mm. ever. So we've never gone as far as as Pluto before. Mm. Um, on purpose. On purpose. <laughs> yeah. um, well, you know, they always knew the Voyagers would would head out, but, you know, that wasn't their goal. That mm. wasn't their goal. Their goal was to explore the outer planets. And so it'll be an exciting time, and and I think we're going to get a lot of data coming in over the coming weeks.
2: How long has it actually been going for now? Is it over a decade?
1: About a decade. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's yeah. quite a... Quite so a that's um, amazing is that yeah.
2: that technology had to be future-proofed such that it could
1: do oh, that today. Yeah. Yeah. They are really i have to say you know the space industry is really good at doing that for these longer missions it's mm. um it's quite extraordinary and you know back then if you think what what megapixels you had in your phone or camera mm, yeah. you know, these guys are probably you know so if you if you get back a picture from from this mission and it's only 10 megapixels don't be disappointed because <laughs> that was bloody hot 10 years ago <laughs> really good stuff triple ah. We are hopefully joined on the line now by Mark Wake, Wakeham. Mark, are you there? Yeah, I am. Mark is the CEO of Environment Victoria, and we, we thought we'd have a chat to you, Mark, first of all about um, the role that Environment Victoria plays um, in the state. Can you give us a bit of a rundown of what you guys do?
0: Sure. So we've been in existence since 1969. At the time, a a bunch of groups were working to protect the little desert area of Western Victoria, and they actually were successful in creating a national park, but they realised that... There was no environment group that was really focused on state issues or national issues as they are relevant to Victoria. So we were formed back then, 45 years ago, to mm-hmm. do that, to really focus on the statewide environmental issues or national issues and, and I guess Victoria's contribution. So things like the Murray Darling Basin Plan and our response to climate change.
1: Yep. And, and give us an idea of how big the organisation is now.
0: Look, um, we've got around uh, 65,000 Victorian supporters, so Mm -hmm. we've grown the size of the organisation quite a lot in recent years. We lost a lot of government funding and we realised we really needed to build our base and um, build our... Um, community, particularly in areas that are particularly relevant um, at every single election. So um, we put a lot of effort into to building up the grassroots of the organisation and that's starting to really pay some dividends.
1: Mm. Now, one of the reasons we wanted to have a chat was around this issue of um, reintroducing a state renewable energy target, yes. which I understand the Federal Minister um, for Energy, Ian McFarlane, has said, no, thou shalt not do that in Victoria. Um, you have to abide by the, the federal one. Can you give us an idea idea of how that these two um scenarios play together that the state and federal governments in terms of these targets it seems odd that we can't have our own target
0: yeah sure look we've had our own target in the past alongside a federal target we had a national renewable energy target introduced in i think in 2000 i think it was and it was a very small target and so um, about 10 years ago, the Victorian government introduced a state target to try and drive a few new projects in Victoria, and that was successful. And then other state governments did the same thing. New mm-hmm. South Wales and South Australia did the same thing. Um, and, and so we ended up getting a much stronger federal target. And at the time that the federal target was strengthened, back in 2010, and at the time both the Coalition and the ALP supported um, a much higher national target, uh, the states agreed to drop their own state targets. Um okay. Since then, of course, um, the Federal Coalition has broken its commitment to um, a 41,000 gigawatt hour um, national renewable energy target. And so the state government said, look, we want to introduce our own because we want to get those projects, particularly the, the wind farms and some of the large scale solar projects that would have happened with the higher targets. And we've got a bit of um, quibbling from the Federal Government around our ability to do that. But um, that, that's, that can happen. It will require some changes. To legislation and uh, we're really hopeful that that will happen uh, later this month, that the the Victorian Senators in the Federal Parliament will actually vote for changes to the national legislation to allow us to have our own target and get the jobs and investment that comes with it.
1: Mm. Now I want to talk a bit about that, the the jobs and investment, because you know, we hear about these environmental targets around the world all the time and in fact many of them are just summarily ignored by most nations and you know there's a lot of lip service paid to you know, we've got 10% of the way there, that's great type of stuff what what does this actually mean on the ground in terms of you know the changes to victorian projects the economy and and so the average average person listening
0: Look, this is, this target is actually a legislated target and it would create an obligation on electricity companies to either build renewable energy projects or to buy certificates from somebody else who's built them. So Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not like just plucking a number out of the air and hoping that we achieve it. It will actually happen, um, if it's, if it's legislated. Uh, and that means that a bunch of projects, particularly wind farms, but also a few large scale solar projects that, that need that um, legislative certainty and they also need that financial incentive to to get their project off the ground uh, will happen and most of them are in regional Victoria. They create a lot of jobs particularly in the construction of these projects but then ongoing there's also a number of maintenance um, jobs so you, you know regional jobs are pretty hard to come by at the moment um, and particularly western and, and North northwestern Victoria could really benefit from manufacturing construction and ongoing maintenance jobs uh, and really all we need to do is to, to change the legislation and we'll, we'll get some of these new projects which will substitute for, for coal-fired power which of course is creating all sorts of problems both from climate change perspective but also for local communities. Yeah.
2: So Marcus, just Lauren here, I, I was interested in that idea of these wind farms and solar farms that are ready to go, H- how close are we to actually being able to start construction on them? Are we just really waiting on this legislation? Yeah. That,
0: that's right, Lauren. Um, they've got planning approval, so they've been through local council or state planning processes and the companies are ready to go. What they need is the financial certainty that would come with the state renewable energy target that would allow them to go and borrow money to build the projects. Fantastic. Um, and then, they can, then that can happen very quickly. We'd be likely if we had a um, legislative renewable energy target by the end of July, for instance, we'd, like, we'd be likely to see construction start before the end of this calendar year. And it's it's not, it's not there's not many options, so you know creating hundreds of new jobs in regional Victoria in a very short time frame, mm. and we're seeing areas like um, Geelong uh, really hit by the closure of our coal and the Sea mm. power station. So we really need to get some of these regional industries going.
3: Mark, it's Dr. Crystal here. I was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about why wind and solar, and why Victoria? Like, what is our potential? Like, what what, what are we missing out on if we if we don't um, proceed with these um, new investments?
0: Yeah, look, I guess there's a couple of things there. Um, we have the dirtiest power supply in the world in Victoria at the moment. So despite our efforts um, on climate change over the last decade, we have still at the dirtiest power stations in the world. So there's a real imperative to start cleaning up our, our supply. And, of course, it's also creating a lot of problems for local communities. We've got really old power stations like Hazelwood and Yalorn, which um, Hazelwood Mine was on fire for for 45 days last year, um, and all sorts of pollution for the local community. Um, The Yalorn Mine broke just two and a half years ago, and into the Latrobe River. So these old mines and power stations are really problematic, so that's the first um, thing to keep in mind. Um, Secondly, um, because of those, um, how out of date and polluting those power stations are, we have really high emissions per capita amongst the highest in the world um so again we need to clean up our power supply but then i guess that's the downside the the upside is the opportunity that we have um in these industries which are two of the fastest growing industries in the world the wind industry and the solar industry um and We've sent these industries a real stop-start signal in Australia. At times we've been interested in them and then we seem to turn our backs on them. Um, but uh, they, they still want to give it a crack. In Victoria and Australia, those industries, some have been incredibly... Patient, um and there's a real opportunity for us to be part of that investment boom that's happening around the world. I mean, wind power's been growing about 30% every year um, for the past decade globally, and, and solar power at closer to 50%. So, you know, their growth rates are sort of similar to the you know, uptake of mobile phones 10, 15 yeah. years ago, and you're kind of crazy to turn your back on that um, as, a, as a government. If you actually, you know, if what you care about, and you know, we know governments care a lot about, Economic growth um, and the economy, um, and if that's what you care about, it, it, it is insane to turn your back on it. Which is why it's so bizarre that both the federal coalition and the state coalition last year in Victoria was were so opposed to new renewable energy projects.
1: Mm. They do get great donations from some of these uh, these companies, though, don't they? I suppose. Mark, one of the other areas that um, I, I wanted to explore with you is the potential of geothermal energy. It, it yeah. seems to me, I mean, when I think about coal. I, uh, my, my sort of, you know, layman's understanding is you, it's a great insulating material and if you left it in the ground, it would be a great area to do sort of geothermal projects. Is Victoria a place where that type of technology could be well, well and truly implemented for, you know, working towards baseload power?
0: Look, it is possible. It's probably not going to happen in the really short term. Um, There's a few countries around the world that have made geothermal work really well, and I'm thinking of places like New Zealand and and the Philippines Mm. uh, that have really shallow geothermal resources. In Australia the the resources tend to be much deeper um, which means that they're they're more expensive projects and in terms of which renewable technologies are likely to really get off the ground quickly, it's the the technologies that are more mature like solar panels and like wood farms Mm. and like large scale solar that, that are kind of at the front of the queue in terms of getting up and going but it's not to say that we shouldn't be investing in trying to understand that geothermal resource and as you say it's It's known that under the coal in the Latrobe Valley there is a resource there, so we should be starting to try and prove that up and start getting planning approval so that in 5, 10, 15 years we are um, taking advantage of that opportunity as well.
1: Mm. So I guess it's that... uh that variety of options as opposed to sticking all your money behind one which we've done for many years with coal and gas you know and, and you know, restricting ourselves in terms of investment and, and opportunities by not exploring these other areas to the same degree Yeah
0: that's right, that's right and there's other technologies like battery storage mm. that we should be looking at um, and really starting to be at the front of the, the wave of development in that industry
1: mm. Look Mark it's great talking to you and um, we are very interested in how this turns out but uh, you would hope that it goes the right way and victoria gets uh, to do its own thing and hopefully we can um we can get investments going into those projects and i have to say it is disturbing to know that they're all ready to go and they're just short on some stability in the system so hopefully that will will go ahead and and approximately how many projects are we talking about that are sort of ready to ready to run
0: uh, look, I believe it's about 15 wind farms that have planning approval, wow. and some of them are very large wind farms that would create hundreds of jobs in their mm. construction. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a few large solar projects, but there's also an awful lot of small ones, and as we know, the, the small-scale solar industry is absolutely booming at the mm. moment.
1: Yep. Mark Wakem, thanks so much for talking to us and uh, good luck with the continued effort to uh, get Victoria going in the right direction. Thanks very much for having me. Great. Mark Wakem is the CEO of Environment Victoria and I think it'd be very interesting to see how this turns out but Mm -hmm. hopefully we will um, get our own way.
3: Well, if we're talking about being a a smarter, if we want to work smarter and be a more innovative country, I mean, this is just such a great opportunity to put some of our fantastic Mm -hmm. research
2: and development into action. Yeah, especially when it's already there, it's ready to go. You know, they've got the approval. Also, it's yeah it just seems crazy
1: yeah well I, I, that's why i asked the question of how many projects mm. i was a bit shocked to hear it's 15 plus yeah. 15 big ones plus mm. which is hmm yeah Three, two, ah. we are joined in the studio now by dr zarina lochmick now Zarina I am welcome first Thank of you. all I'm going to try and get all of your amazing accolades out in one go you're the head of vascular anomalies research laboratory a clinical nurse consultant for vascular anomalies you're a senior lecturer in the faculty of dentistry medicine and health sciences at the University of Melbourne and you work at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the Royal Children's Hospital did I miss anything no I think that comes <laughs>
3: down <laughs> and what do you do in your spare time yeah,
1: <laughs> fantastic now now you're you're um in this area of vascular anomalies Give just a quick rundown on what you mean by that term i mean I, i'm hearing veins gone wrong
4: mm, that's pretty much covers it but um so as your um, audience probably will know you have two systems in your body one is the blood circular and the other one is the lymphatic circular mm-hmm. systems and so vascular anomalies are actually developmental disorders of um, either system um, and okay. they can be divided into vascular tumors or malformations with vascular tumors the most um familiar one would be um infantile hemangioma strawberry birthmark okay and then um, the less familiar one would be a malformation which would be basically lymphatic malformations arterial malformation so pretty much any part of the vascular system can be affected by these so,
1: so you mentioned birthmarks i mean this is something that you have for, i've got one on my wrist you know um yeah they're all looking at
4: me <laughs> 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 how common are it's they
1: gorgeous it's gorgeous <laughs> um, but, but why does something like that stick around not that i want to get rid of it it's part of me
4: well, it's basically part of your development to yeah. begin with. It's something that developed pretty much at some point of conception. So mm. it's not, it, with vascular mm. anomalies in particular, um, it is not something that you've inherited necessarily from your parents. It's just something that happens by accident. There's a spontaneous mutation in a tissue cell, and that basically results in abnormality of the system thereafter that mutation right. occurs. Mm. Um, and so in reality, um, when you're born, it becomes part of you and it grows with you and it develops with you. So sometimes they are visible on the surface because they're on the skin. Mm. But sometimes they're also very deep in a tissue so okay. it, it could be in the lung in the brain um, in the muscle and so on and in that case they're not really visible even though we still refer to them as birthmarks
1: now, now i'm i'm really curious about how these things stick around when you're in utero and so forth because my understanding and i could be wrong here is that we don't scar when we're in utero because of that rapid development phase and so forth why do these things stick around? Why don't they? Why don't we sort of self repair them, or, or why doesn't the vascular system kind of get around it?
4: Yeah, well, um, it's a little bit of a myth that we don't actually scar during uterine um, oh, development.
1: Damn, Damn. Are you trying to develop? I thought I knew something.
4: <laughs> myth busted. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's actually quite conflicting. Some people will say that you don't scar, but some people will say that you do. And certainly um, in the United States, when they do um, a, basically an operation on a fetus before Mm -hmm. it's born they do actually um, come out with scars so it's not a scarless healing Mm. Um, in regards to the vascular anomalies or malformations it's a little bit different so basically what happens there is that there is a mutation in a certain gene and um, that mutation is then carried on to all the cells that arise after that point so it becomes part of your system Mm. altogether Mm. it is not something that our dna can pick up necessarily as an error that it can actually correct in time so that it's
2: lost it actually it becomes an integral part of, of the structure. Exactly. Mm. You were just say, mentioning that um, often with these birthmarks, they sort of grow with us. Is there differences in rate of growth? Because I've, I've sort of seen a few babies where it seems that the birthmark stays very stable. Other times it seems like there is... You know, change in that? So is that a different type of thing? Um, I think a lot of that actually depends on the location of the ma- of the actual birthmark mm.
4: and the reason why is that if you think about lymphatic malformations, which are my favourite mm-hmm. um, 75% of them occur in head and neck region and there the structure of the neck and the way the skin just sort of sits on the structures mm. um, is, is very um, flexible and allows the cyst for example to grow really quickly oh, and sure. expand whereas in something um, like muscle that ability to expand with the growth is limited because of the structure of the muscle itself. So those malformations become an integral part of the muscle, but they don't necessarily go much bigger. Mm -hmm. Having said that, some malformations are actually part of syndromes, Mm -hmm. um, um, overgrowth syndromes in particular. And so what you'll find is that there will be um, a syndrome whereby there is... um, a sort of one-sided overgrowth of tissue, whether it's a hand or a leg or a flank, and so um, your left side will be normal, but your right side will be overgrown, and mm-hmm. that's why you'll see the babies with disproportionate growth. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, I was going to ask that. I mean, how
3: common is it to have a birthmark? And if you have a birthmark that's visible on your skin, does that mean? Yeah, you know, what does that mean for the
4: other other parts of your body? I mean, you just mm-hmm. kind of said a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, with um, a strawberry birthmark or infantile al- hemangioma, hymen- about one in ten babies is affected by that. Oh, that's so actually quite common. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, in that context. Um, In fact, hemangioma is really interesting because it's um, one of the few tumours that regresses on its own. Mm. So it has a really sort of limited lifespan. It starts off as a bunch of undifferentiated cells, which then give rise to a blood vascular mass. Mm. And so we see them literally as little strawberries hanging on the skin. Mm. And then over time, something occurs with that tumour that actually causes it to start to regress and disappear on its own. So when patients present to our clinic, for example, what we do is we monitor that rather than to be surgically or treated with the drugs.
0: Mm.
4: With um, lymphatic malformations, for example, one in 2,000 babies is affected, but the outcome there is very different. So as I mentioned earlier, about 75% of them occur in head and neck region, and they're actually diagnosed with an ultrasound before the baby's born. And what occurs in that context is that you can already anticipate that they will basically be born with these massive cysts. And the idea is that they're born, they're taken to ICU, and then they transfer transferred to the Royal Children's Hospital where they're actually managed mostly surgically or three-dimensional mm-hmm. radiology. Mm-hmm. So that must be um, a very emotional time for parents mm-hmm. who, are, who, are, who
3: find out that you know, they're having a baby that will have complications upon birth. How do, how do you
4: sort of help prepare people for that journey? Well, we have a study at the moment, um, again, at the Royal Children's Hospital, where we are looking at the experiences of parents during that stage of diagnosis, if you like. Um, and what seems to happen is that there is a um You can never really prepare anybody for bad news, there's no doubt about that. But what we are finding from parents' stories is that there is a lack of understanding and knowledge on these malformations and that a lot of times people will be advised to terminate a pregnancy rather than being referred to our services. And now that's not because um, people um, don't want to refer, it's just the fact that they're not aware that we exist. And I think that there's also lack of knowledge on this malformation in general because um, people will say, that it's associated with developmental delay, um, physical defects and so on. Yes, from the um, aesthetic point of view, children do look different because the cyst is in the neck and it stays with them, but they are not intellectually impaired. They do not have any loss of quality in life in terms of what they're able to do, whether they play sports or, or so on. Mm.
3: And that's, that's probably improving over time. I guess with more knowledge around the condition and better strategies to manage it, historically you might find that there's actually uh, an increase in, in outcomes
4: for those kids. Absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, we've um, engaged ourselves um, quite heavily with a number of hospitals to try and increase the level of awareness of both what the malformation is but also of the services possible to manage the child after birth.
2: So this is um, talking, obviously, about the lymphatic um, anom- anomalies. Uh, there's obviously going to be other anomalies that will have different outcomes so are there some where that that journey would be harder for the parents because the outcomes are poorer um no. If we
4: consider the fact of the diagnosis, those that are really easily picked up are those that are either on overgrowth or those that are um, lymphatic malformations. With the others, it's not so easy to pick them up on wow, the ultrasound. Sure. And so about, um, it's estimated about 60% of them are visible at birth and by two years of age, about 100% of them are visible. Mm. Having said that, again, it comes down to if that malformation is affecting your function or not. Mm. So you might have a malformation and it will never be treated because it doesn't give you any trouble. Mm. But then you'll have others... Um, they will interfere with airway, function of an organ, in which case you have to do something to improve that quality of mm-hmm.
2: life.
1: Sure. Now, Zarina, my understanding is that you can also develop these later in life, not necessarily, you know, when you're when you're a child what is it the same grouping i mean i I don't hear of anyone to the randomly developing a birthmark later in life so presumably that's not one but with these other issues around lymphatic systems and other systems in the body what sort of things do we end up developing later in life
4: well it's actually quite rare to develop something like this um later in life you certainly will not develop a um, lymphatic um cyst that is um diagnosed as lymphatic malformation later in life Mm -hmm. what does occur is that significant trauma for example can inject changes in how vessels recover and how right. they form new vascular structure in that injured tissue and so that can certainly form issues for some of the people uh, we have um, an arteriovenous malformation for example um, and certainly um, there are um, anecdotal stories that people have developed those in the late 60s particularly in the hand and mouth um, and it's again associated with trauma rather than anything else Could I ask you a question about your own personal career? (laughs) You're a scientist
3: nurse, is that correct? Yes. How many scientist nurses are there out there? I mean, how has your career um, developed to get to this point? oh
1: um <laughs> at the I, answer might be one <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: but I, I, I think it's fabulous I mean it, you, you began your career as, as a nurse
4: as a scientist
3: as a scientist a and then oh. and then that led you to nursing or
4: well it's, it's kind of a, um, like most people I faced issues with funding and um, career certainty and I got to a point where my career wasn't going anyway and I wasn't as a, really, scientist. as a scientist and certainly lack of funding was making it difficult to have a normal life in terms of you know the getting loans and things at Food. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I opted. Um, I, I felt at that particular time that I needed another career or backup. I love science. I love research. I love going into the lab and being there. But I also felt that I needed a contact with a patient and a person, and to have a more global approach to my research. I wanted the questions to reflect what people were experiencing and what was affecting them. Um, and I like the idea of being a nurse because. Nurses spend a lot of time with a patient. It's almost Mm. one to one care, if Mm. you like. And you get to know them, you get to talk to them, you find out what the concerns are. And many conversations that I've had with parents in particular have given rise to a number of ideas that I've taken to the lab and Mm. developed into research projects. I'm only aware of myself. Mm-hmm. heading in this pathway I know that there are many scientists who have stopped doing science and became nurses really great nurses but they for whatever reason haven't uh, opted to uh, mm-hmm. remain scientists I just think it's
3: fabulous to be able to connect with the problems that are the real problems that are out there mm-hmm. and being able to use the science that actually addresses a patient need and and just tightening that
4: connectivity I think it's maybe an area in which we could be doing so much more I think so I mean in addition to communicating what's happening in the lab you're actually providing people with hope that someone cares, that someone is interested in what happens to their child mm. and, more importantly, that that child can come and talk to a scientist and find out what happens um, mm. to them over time. Is it, is it going to be something they're going to pass on to their children and so on? Mm. And we certainly had a number of um, young people coming to our laboratory to talk to us about mm. what's happening with their condition and what they can do to make things different.
1: I, I agree. It's, it's absolutely fabulous that clinicians, and there, there are many um, clinicians, actually, who are clinician-scientists, not many nurses that I know <laughs> of, but but it is fantastic for, for parents and, and adolescents and kids themselves to be able to speak to uh, one of the clinicians mm-hmm. and know that they are also involved at the forefront of the research in the area. I think that is a, it's an added bonus. that really means a lot because you know instantly you're getting the best care, mm, which is the key right. point. Yeah. Mm. Well, Zarina, thanks so much for coming and speaking to us. It's a really fascinating area, and um, good luck with your unusual career mix. I, I know a lot of people would value it very highly, so thanks so much.
4: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
1: Dr. Zarina, Zarina Lockmick is uh, from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, the Royal Children's Hospital, and the University of Melbourne, and working in the area of vascular anomalies. 102.7 now I have bought in a book. It's really rare that I get to read a book. but Does it I,
3: have pictures? No,
1: no, actually, I'm sorry. Actually, it does. Oh, that's okay. But not many. <laughs> no,
3: no, lift the flap section. And, there,
1: and there's no sort of fold-out ones or anything. So, <laughs> so it's not. That. No. Now the book I wanted to talk about today was. Um, you might be able to guess what it's about by the title. It's called Neil Armstrong. <laughs> Is that giving Post it away? <laughs> A Life of Flight. And it's written by Jay Barbary. And um, Mr. Barbary is uh, one of those amazing reporters who pretty much covered every launch, every aspect of the Apollo, Gemini, mm-hmm. and uh, Mercury days of space flights, and and then some through um, the space shuttle and so forth, mm-hmm. and has just been heavily involved with um, with what these guys have done for many years. I
2: actually remember reading something about that. Apparently all the journalists, mm-hmm. like, they almost became Family. their own little, yeah, exactly, because mm-hmm. they well, were always there.
1: And many of them lived in, you know, because there was sort of purpose-built yeah. um, houses and so forth for the astronauts, and many of them lived in the vicinity, and so they were part of the community, Amazing. and there was an incredible level of trust between many of them and uh, you know these journalists and in fact um jay barbary was one of the few who knew neil armstrong very well and Mm. and in reading this book and I i have to say you know i'm i'm a put a downer of books Mm -hmm. like like movies Mm -hmm. if it's crap i don't finish them i you know a few books recently i've started uh you know halfway Mm -hmm. through gee you know oh oh, there's something on tv
3: (laughs) my bedside table is littered with unfinished books (laughs) yeah i just
1: can't waste my time in it. i won't do it um this book however I was actually kind of sad when I got to the end mm. that it had finished. And I think it's partly because I just, you know, long-time listeners of the show know I just have this incredible passion and interest for what I consider to be the most amazing period of space mm. exploration that we've ever experienced as a, as, a, as a species. We did some extraordinary things with, mm. you know, computers that were just so rudimentary Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. most of us walk around with far greater computing capacity than nasa had Mm -hmm. when they they put a human being or two on the moon Mm -hmm. um and so reading the story of neil armstrong and reading about his early test um, pilot days the type of pilot he was the type of man he was was quite Mm -hmm. interesting and he was never really the sort of person who would come out and sort of note himself at all about Mm. the moon landing which is quite you know the most extraordinary feat a human being Mm. has pretty much accomplished i mean i I know people will say oh you know there are other things but i have to say for me this is this is extraordinary Mm. and you know to be fair thousands of people involved and in fact whenever he was interviewed that's all he talked about Mm. everyone else that did the job he was Mm. he was the perfect individual for NASA at the time to to take on the mantle of being such an extraordinary Mm. person. And there's a lot in in this book also about um, Buzz Aldrin. Mm. Um, I you know because buzz wasn't his legal name until i think 1986 or 88 i'm not sure if you're aware of that i'm not sure if you're aware i assumed
2: of... his parents didn't call him buzz no, no
1: but his sister yeah. couldn't say the word brother she oh. said buzzer which then got shortened to buzz
2: oh that's lovely. that's where the
1: name came from
2: that's lovely so
1: um that that's in the book um and there's there's extraordinary detail about some of the missions and so forth which i just found absolutely fascinating and i thought i'd just read you a little bit of text and i i look listeners i 've agreed to lend this is one of my prize books. It was a gift from my wife i 've agreed to lend it to Dr. Lauren. <laughs>
2: <coughs> With a lot of caveats, and I have to it's have a special place on my yep. table. Gloves. A blanket.
1: has <laughs> to wear gloves, like she's in a museum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can only sit in a
2: temperature-controlled room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: And if, I, if it comes, well, you, you'll, anyway, we'll, we'll follow up on how well she's treated. But I thought I'd just read a little piece of this book because I thought it was a beautifully written book as well. Um, and this was um, basically the part written just after they'd landed on the moon. It said, um, so here it goes. Um, they had indeed... indeed they had indeed landed on a dead world, a land that had never seen the caress of seas, never felt life stirring in its soil, never felt the smallest leaf drift to its surface. No small creatures to scurry from rock to rock, not a single blade of green, not even the slightest whisper of a breeze. They were on a world where a thermonuclear fireball would sound no louder than a falling snowflake. Mm. So it's really it's beautiful, isn't it? But there was no time for savoring it or appreciating the science of all of it. They had much to do very quickly, and they got busy. Surprisingly, in only half the time they anticipated, Eagle, which was the name of the craft, of course, had settled gently into its perch on the moon with all its systems purring. Neil and Buzz were ready to open the hatch. They that plan to hoodwink the media with a scheduled four-hour sleep and rest period wasn't needed. So they told the media that after landing. They would rest for four hours before getting out. Uh The reason for that was to make sure all the systems were operational mm-hmm. but they were so quickly in order they didn't have to do that so apparently most of the media had gone off to the local pub <laughs> they to, you know they're about to get out holy crap put down the beer get back you know, <laughs> it was literally like that um and then he goes on to say uh, that this is a quote from Neil Armstrong um of course we wanted to get outside as soon as possible no surprise there mm. um, we needed the contingency sample to show that we had been there but we were convinced we'd need several hours to get eagles fluids and systems settled with all that time passing and nothing happening you reporters would have been speculating guessing about possible problems and we didn't want you guys inventing stories we wanted you thinking we were sleeping <laughs> so it, there's just so many parts of the book that are like that and, mm. and for me it was um just a great book to read because it really told the the personal story of what these guys went through what they didn't know and dr Kristin, mm. and i were just talking in the break i,
3: I had something this week that said they had no idea how much dust would be on the planet yeah. on, the, on the moon's surface so that six foot they, deep yeah so when yeah. they they were like because you, mm. you can recall that that beautiful image of the um the astronauts footprints um mm. Mm. In, in about i don't know an inch or so of dust yeah and you yeah. think they didn't know whether or not when they landed they would just keep sinking i mean yeah. it's just it, it's, it's just incredible the amount of unknowns yeah. and mm. the the almost uh, i wouldn't say it was reckless but i'd say it was just incredibly brave because of so mm. much uncertainty mm. if we'd waited till we'd known everything we never would have
1: gone yeah mm. and little things like he he neil armstrong admits you know in, in quotes in his book that you know there's that first footprint he puts down on the moon and in the excitement of getting out and getting the cameras set up and that he walked over it (laughs) and you know i mean so and and he was very very um you know derogatory to himself for having done that because you know but it's like well yeah but i think people understand (laughs) that this was an extraordinary moment and you know to this day, you know, people still have an image of a footprint mm. on the moon and no one really thinks maybe it wasn't the first one. <laughs> so, mm. and it's, it's one of those areas. It was, it was mm. a
3: scientific achievement, not a photo opportunity.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, they, they took some amazing photos while well, they were up yeah, there. Yeah. But, um, you know, there were many things that were just crucial and, and that, mm. that, um, that sample. So they, they collected many samples, mm. but there was this concern about getting a contingency sample, which could have been the equivalent of Neil almost sort of reaching out and just grabbing something and then quickly shutting the hatch to make sure that they could show we have been to the moon Mm. because that was the part that they were worried about how long they'd be able to stay how much work they'd be able to actually do Mm. and they needed to be able to prove that they'd actually landed on the moon so to anyone out there who doesn't believe it's true you know yeah, um, yeah you know Earth, Earth, round, two folks, not flat.
2: Mm. How long were they actually on the moon's surface?
1: just a few hours, yeah. so it wasn 't an overly long stay the first time round and yep. and you can imagine yeah, it would have been you know can we hang around a bit longer you know?
2: for them, can you imagine that that you just would have been like oh let 's just stay oh, <laughs> yeah. just,
1: I, I just imagine those conversations with NASA. you know can we have an extra hour? <gasps> that 's a negative eagle <laughs> get back in
2: <laughs> and and. and
3: you just think of all the technology spin-offs that have come from yeah. some, some of that space um, travel. Mm. I mean, everything from um, yeah. uh, well, fr- from everything. <laughs> uh, computer chips, freeze yeah. dried food, cordless drills, um, scratchless contact lenses. Mm-hmm. You know, to the, the to the yeah, smoke detectors, and, and you know, yeah. just all the all the thing, all the challenges that had to be met made us think about how to make Indeed.
1: new things. So grab the book, folks. Um, I highly recommend it, which I rarely do if you've listened this program for a long time it's called neil armstrong a life of flight by jay barbary um, and it's from thomas dunn books and st martin's press so um, have a read i'll give it to dr lauren and she can confirm whether or not i'm telling the truth thanks for listening Uh, this has been another hour of einstein a go-go thank you dr lauren dr crystal i'm dr shane and until next week remember science is everywhere have a great long weekend